It's Thursday, January 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Experts are sounding the alarm on measles again, as authorities in the Northwest say that there are 38 confirmed cases. Most of the confirmed cases are children under 10. 34 of them were not immunized. Eileen Dredge O'Reilly, science writer at Axios, joins us to talk about why public health officials are concerned and why some are refusing to vaccinate their kids. Next, President Trump is once again at odds with some of his top intelligence officials. Speaking before the Senate Intelligence Committee, CIA Director Gina Haspel and Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats both broke with the president on several foreign policy fronts, including North Korea, Iran, and ISIS. Caitlin Oprisco, reporter for Politico, joins us for what they said and the president's response. Finally, flight attendants are now having to hustle for tips. A new policy at Frontier Airlines lets passengers tip the flight attendants whenever they use their cards to pay for drinks or snacks. Reaction is mixed, with some welcoming the extra income and others saying the sales job bogs them down when passenger safety is their main concern. My producer Miranda joins us to break it down. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. A single individual gets measles. On average, 12 to 18 other unvaccinated individuals will also get it if they're nearby. Joining us now is Eileen Drage O'Reilly, science writer for Axios. We're going to be talking about the measles. After practically having eliminated measles in the year 2000, they're coming back in small pockets all over the place. There's this growing anti-vaccination movement, and it's led to this resurgence of cases. Right now in Washington, the governor, Jay Inslee, declared a state of emergency on January 25th that these cases in in various counties have caused a public disaster. I think at the beginning of the week, there was about 36 cases of measles, and most of them were kids that had not been vaccinated. What is going on with these measles outbreaks? The problem with measles is that it's such a contagious disease. It's a respiratory virus that can stay in the air for a couple of hours after somebody leaves the room. So it's extremely contagious, and what it takes to control that kind of virus is a very high vaccination rate. Specifically with the Washington case, they're kind of nervous. They said that they think somebody might have gone to a uh, Portland Trailblazers game, Children's Museum. There's dozens of possible exposure locations right now. That's the concern. They don't know yet if anyone else has caught it. You have to either be under 12 months old or unvaccinated. Otherwise, you have a very high chance of resisting it. And right now, there's several of these outbreaks. Just to define the outbreaks, that's uh, three or more cases. So the threshold is relatively low. But, you know, this is one of those diseases that had largely been eliminated. What have public health officials been saying about this so far? They're very concerned. It's obviously a very... Once they developed the vaccine in the 1960s, the rate of measles dropped very sharply, and they were it was a very coup for the U.S. to have basically no measles. But it doesn't really matter if the U.S. doesn't have any measles as an endemic disease in their country, because other countries do. And when people travel there, if they're unvaccinated and bring it back, it'll infect people who are also are unvaccinated. And what's driving this uh, anti-vaccination movement? I, I know some people object to it for religious reasons or other ethical reasons. One of the quotes that I saw in one of the reporting says, you know, there's vaccine hesitant Amish people, there's Orthodox Jews in New York, there's Californians who don't want to put unnatural things in their kids' bodies, and then parents who just want to delay immunizations. But what's driving this stuff? 
It is a big mix of all those things. I think a small group of people that are anti-government or even some of them are anti-big pharma and that they are concerned about the validity of the science behind it and don't think that the government should tell them how to treat their bodies and that kind of thing. But I think for the most part, public health officials I've spoken to are concerned about the misinformation that might be circulating around. There was this study, 1998. Yeah. It was a very small study, but it was published. What it said was that there the link between autism and MMR vaccines. Even though that study was debunked by science, it was retracted from the journal, and the doctor who wrote it, license was taken away, it still caught the imagination of people and brought the fear. That's one of the ones that has lasted for, I mean, basically since that study came out, people have already been wary of the vaccine since then, but there is no conclusive evidence that it causes autism or anything like that. So I, I know that the public information campaign needs to ramp up again with with something like that. Speaking on to that, you know, the social media aspect of that, you know, there's a few celebrities and people that say, hey, you know, we're against this. It's uh, not natural. It, it has links to this. And then we know that that megaphone is very loud. You know, a lot of people pick it up and then they start to believe it as well. Absolutely. That is definitely a problem. It's interesting because the measles vaccine is very effective. Even one of the quotes from some of the people you were talking to said people were forgetting how much they were clamoring for the vaccine in the first place. So it's like to now go back on it is really disturbing. It's true because, I mean, we don't see it. I know when I was growing up, I didn't see I don't think I knew anybody who had measles. And of course, we got the vaccine and everything. But the thing is, the people that were before the vaccination came out, they will remember. They remember how contagious it is. And while it's not that deadly, like maybe one or two people out of 1,000 will die from it, it's, it can cause serious complications. And nobody wants those one or two people to die anyway. So Yeah, and if it's totally preventable, why are we going through pains to not get the vaccine? Just right. doesn't make sense a lot of times. Eileen Drage O'Reilly, science writer at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Over this past year, we have not seen any evidence. Uh, they have not uh, uh, done missile, seen a nuclear missile testing uh, or launching. So that's the position we're in right now. But again, we keep an open eyes and, and open ears to exactly what's going on. Joining us now is Caitlin Oprisco, reporter for Politico. We're going to be talking about the U.S. intelligence chiefs that were, they uh, testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee the other day. Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, broke with the president on a range of issues uh, relating national security, specifically Iran, North Korea, and ISIS. Well, what do we know about what they said in their testimony? The you know, Trump administration has recently policy proposals regarding North Korea, Iran, and ISIS. They kind of contradicted them. Um, at each step of the way. So on Iran, for instance, the Trump administration has said that they withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal because they thought that Iran was taking steps towards developing nuclear weapons. Dan Coates disagreed with that yesterday. He said that they're taking no active steps to do such a thing. CIA Director Gina Haspel said that they are currently technically in compliance with the Iran nuclear deal, but Dan Coates also said publicly they'd be willing to push the boundaries of the deal if they you know, don't see that they're getting any benefits remaining in the deal with the rest of the countries that are still in it. Just with respect to Iran, I mean, it's interesting. The The president always paints the rosy picture of we got out of the deal and everything's so much better than that. 
And then uh, Dan Coates comes in, and with Gina Haspel as well, they come in and say, you know, they paint a more sobering picture, saying, well, they're still adhering to the original deal. They could push the boundaries if they want to, but, you know, the president's making it seem like they're still actively going for this. So there's this disconnect there. And you were continuing with North Korea, a lot of the same stuff. The president paints the picture as, oh, they're ready to completely denuclearize. And Dan Coates said the opposite. Yeah, he was saying that their intelligence was that they've expressed an openness to denuclearization, but the activities that they've seen recently are inconsistent with that. And Trump, after his first summit with Kim Jong-un last summer, said that they're not going to be an issue anymore, that there's no threat of nuclear war with North Korea. And Coates and Haspel were like, no, I don't know about that. And then even Trump tweeted, he was responding to all of them. And he said that the relationship was the best it's ever been. And he said that there's going to be great progress made. He compared it to the Obama administration, said, no, it's much better now. So yeah, and then on ISIS, of course, Trump suddenly announced last month that he was going to withdraw troops from Syria. Now he's kind of backpedaling on that, but he declared ISIS defeated. And then Dan Coates said, no, they're not. They are looking to resurge. They still have thousands of fighters under their command, and they're just kind of looking for a, an opening to bring it back up. I noticed in your reporting, you also mentioned that they did mention something about the border security as not being a crisis. What did they say regarding that? Regarding border security, they said that there was an issue with drugs being smuggled across the border, that that was an issue. They didn't mention it until like the middle of their report, which was 42 pages long. North Korea and Iran and ISIS were way above it. So they said that that aspect of happening at the southern border is somewhat of a threat, but they made no indication to back up Trump's claims that, you know, terrorists are coming across the border or that migrants who are seeking asylum, they made no mention of that being a security crisis, which is counter to what Trump has been arguing. And if he does decide to declare a national emergency at the southern border, that would probably be used against Trump and the Trump administration, you know, in the expected legal challenges. Now, all of this happened on Tuesday and everybody immediately waits for the response from the president. He has famously been at odds with a lot of his intelligence officials. He hates when people are off message and it's tough to pin the president to a message because he kind of changes his mind a lot. So how did he respond? He responded because, you know, the fact that all of these intelligent experts that he appointed to these positions, they were pretty publicly breaking with him. It got a lot of news coverage, of course. He kind of unleashed on Twitter and lashed out at their comments about ISIS. On Iran, he straight up said they're wrong. He said, quote, the intelligence people seem to be extremely passive and naive when it comes to the dangers of Iran. And then he also said that they perhaps should go back to school. So he clearly was not very happy right. with their assessments of the threats to the United States right now. What have other lawmakers said in response to this? What are they saying is the disconnect? A lot of people have reported before that the president doesn't really like to see a lot of the briefings or he gets bored with them and uninterested. Is he just not taking what they're saying to heart? on it? Or, you know, where is this disconnect and what are lawmakers saying about it? It's hard to say what his disconnect is, but lawmakers, of course, were pretty concerned about what he was saying and that he was so publicly lashing out at the intelligence community. We heard from a lot of Democrats who criticized the president's statement. Republicans were more wary to comment on it, even though they did say that he should stick with what the intelligence community says. I think it was Angus King, who is an independent on the Senate Intelligence Committee 
committee went after the president and said that it's disturbing that he doesn't want to listen to his intelligence experts because these are the people that he's picked to give him this very important information. And then the leader, the Democratic leaders of the House and Senate intelligence committees both spoke out against Trump, you know, kind of going after his intelligence chiefs. It's not a great look for the top of the chain to be going after the intelligence community. Caitlin Oprisco, reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's the visible part of the job is we don't see them when they're attending to a life-threatening emergency, maybe in the back of the plane that we're not supposed to know about. So we see them as sort of like servers up in the air, waiters and waitresses. That's that's what I see. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to be talking about flight attendants and how there's new policy at Frontier Airlines where they can ask for tips. It's actually built into their credit card machines and you can tip them now. They've had a policy set in place for about three years now. But uh, before all the tips were pooled together and all the flight attendants shared it, now the individual flight attendants can claim those tips. So there's that. There's credit card peddling where they say, hey, we got great deals on uh, credit cards and uh, flyer miles. Get this credit card. They receive bonuses for those things. But it calls in a question whether these flight attendants should actually depend on passengers for this extra income. So what do we know about this, Miranda? Starting January 1st, Frontier Airlines began allowing, like you said, individual flight attendants to collect tips from passengers. And it's just like when you go to Starbucks or you take a ride in a taxi, the buttons pop up with the options, you know, 10%, 15%, 20%, or no tip at all. American United, Delta, Spirit, Frontier, and others have flight attendants making in-cabin pitches for the credit cards, like you said, and that's tied to their frequent flyer programs. The commission rates are different for everyone, but Typically, it's about $50 per approved application. American says that while it's voluntary to make the sales pitch in flight, most of them do want to participate because those commissions add up. Honestly, these credit card deals might be really good, especially if you do tend to fly a lot. You do want to save those miles. Those things are beneficial. So they're kind of worthwhile pitches for the passenger and for the flight attendant who could be making some of these bonuses. But with regards to the tipping front, Frontier is one of these ultra low cost airlines where you basically need to pay for everything. They charge for sodas and snacks. You need to pay for baggage fees, overhead compartments. I think I read that you have to pay for the tickets are cheaper, but they charge you for everything else that way. They start this thing where, as you said, you buy a soda, you buy a drink. It's going to say have to bring up that tip line in 10, 15 and 20 percent increments. And it reminds me of the story that we did on the podcast earlier about tipping etiquette uh, with all these iPad tipping systems. Now you have to almost tip right in front of the barista or the store clerk right there. And it kind of creates an embarrassing thing like, oh, maybe I don't want to tip you that much. So no tip, you know, with regards to the flight attendants, they say that uh, it's like kind of half and half. Some of them like it because they get a little extra money. Other people say it devalues their work. They're primarily there for safety. And the snacks and and giving you all your drinks and everything is a secondary part of the job. But that's the thing that we see mostly as passengers. That's the visible part of the job is we don't see them when they're attending to a life-threatening emergency, maybe in the back of the plane that we're not supposed to know about. So we see them as sort of like servers up in the air, waiters and waitresses. That's that's what I see. One flight attendant in particular, her name is Jennifer Sala. 
says that half of the workforce likes the tip because they rely on that extra income and the other half is offended. They're humiliated by it because they weren't trained to sell drinks. And a lot of these airlines are now even incentivizing them by making them have quotas to sell more alcoholic drinks or what have you during the flight to up those increases. I mean, as a flight attendant, you're going to have to start identifying the passengers like, well, okay, they're here to party. Yeah. (laughs) Let me go try to sell them another vodka soda. But they do because they say, you know, flights that are to Las Vegas, those people tend to tip better than overnight passengers who want to sleep on their red eye flight. Yeah, if you're on a red eye flight, you just want to close your eyes and not be bothered, basically. So where does the opportunity come to sell some of this stuff? One of the things that I did not know, and Miranda, you and I were talking this uh, before we started, was how they get paid. Flight attendants, their clock doesn't start until those cabin doors shut. That's so weird. And and that's why they say that uh, Frontier and maybe some of these other airlines are starting this tipping stuff because as a way to supplement that, they work a lot of off-clock hours, and this might be a way to help. Other people have said that this started three years ago, the general tipping thing, when they were going through some nasty negotiations about pay increases for the flight attendants. And this was just a way to quiet them down, maybe offer them a little more money without really giving into the negotiations. One thing to note is that this tipping program, Oscar, has resulted in millions of dollars in tips since the inception three years ago. A lot of the major airlines haven't caught on to this. They still don't accept any tips. Some airlines say maybe accept tips if the customer is really insistent, but generally they have rules against tipping. But these ultra low fare cost ones, Frontier starting it, maybe Spirit Airlines and other ones might take notice and say, hey, if it's working over there, it could work over here as well. Right. It's funny in all of this of, you know, you have to start identifying what really would constitute a tip. Hey, are you helping me a lot more than some of these other passengers if I ring my bell, you know, how fast do you get here? All that stuff. (laughs) There was a story recently. It was just so disgusting, but this lady of all people deserves a tip. It included an overweight passenger who was on an LA to Taipei flight. That's a long flight. She had to go and clean him after he went to the restroom. You're going to make me tell this story now, Oscar. I'm going to make you tell it. A flight attendant for, I'm going to call it EVA, EVA Air. And they are one of those airlines. They only employ a female cabin crew. So this poor woman, she had a passenger who was confined to a wheelchair and he told the flight attendants he needed assistance to use the restroom. This was about two hours into the flight. One poor woman got tasked with helping this man use the bathroom. And so she had to remove his underwear, which she felt was beyond the scope of her responsibilities as a flight attendant. I would agree. I would agree. Right. And so uh, when she told him that she couldn't help him do this, he started screaming and threatened to just relieve himself on the floor. And then once his uh, junk was exposed, another colleague came in and brought up a blanket to kind of give him some privacy, cover up. And he got angry, slapped the hand away and said he didn't want his junk covered. He just wanted her to remove his underwear so he could use the toilet. And as she was wearing three gloves to wipe his bottom, she says he was moaning and groaning as if he was pleased by this. This is just a horrible story. And it's indicative of some of the crap that flight attendants have to go through. Literally. She didn't want to do it, obviously. But the only reason why they gave in was we also can't have him staying in the bathroom for the remainder of the flight. Who knows what would happen to him in there? It's not safe if something happens. That's two hours into a really long flight. So, I mean, you have to kind of do that. Thankfully, the union, the flight union uh, is standing behind her. And I don't know if they're going to sue the passenger. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter. 
and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.